How's everybody doing tonight? Good? Um, well, as I promised, um, you can find a seat tonight. So uh, I guess that's a, a good thing. Everybody have a good fourth? Got to see some fireworks? Um, well, buckle your seat belts because we're going to have plenty of fireworks tonight. Uh, so it's going to be fun. And you know, one of the things that uh, is similar about the founding of this country and uh, what we're going to be talking about tonight is that, uh, you know, this country was founded by uh, a bunch of folks who thought there are worse things than death. And you know, uh, that same thing is true for us um, as we look at the book of Revelation. We're going to see tonight that there are worse things than death. And there, um, what we're going to study tonight is going to be marked by a bunch of people who make the decision that uh, I'm going to trust in Christ. And uh, even if it costs me my life, there are things that are worse than uh, that. And uh, those who choose to follow uh, the Antichrist and to receive his mark, well, we're going to see what happens to them tonight. So uh, I'm dressed in all black. It's only appropriate for uh, what we're going to study tonight. Um, so buckle your seatbelts. You know, um, the first week we did uh, Revelation 1 in an hour and a half. And then the second week we did Revelation 2 and 3 in an hour and a half. And tonight we're going to do Revelation 4 through 16 in an hour and a half. So um, if I get to going too fast, somebody raise your hand and just say, hey, whoa, time out, slow down. Uh, but we've got a lot to do tonight, so let's dive in. Lord, thanks for the opportunity to uh, come together to open uh, a part of your Bible that uh, um, most folks just don't spend much time in. And yet, Lord, uh, I am so excited to uh, have a chance to uh, share what uh, I've learned about this book and to encourage uh, each person in here to uh, make this book uh, uh, part of their regular reading because of the hope that it gives uh, in your Son and the things that it reveals about your Son. And so, Father, um, we... Uh, are excited to uh, not only study it, but to put a stake in the ground and uh, base our confidence for living today on the fact that your son is coming back. And so, Father, thanks for your word, and thanks for each one of the uh, folks in here who's given up a, a perfectly good Thursday night uh, to come uh, hear about your word and about the subject of your righteous judgments. So we pray these things in your son's powerful name. Amen. All right, um, gang, the good news is that uh, our books have come in, and so if we owe you a book because you have correctly answered one of our questions, you can see Robin Howard in the back, and uh, we'll have those there for you. And um, as we start off tonight, let's think back to what we talked about last week. Remember we studied the letters to the seven churches, okay, in Revelation 2 and 3, and... Um, we tried to uh, give you uh, seven different uh, titles for uh, each one of the churches, a uh, title for each church, so to help you remember what that particular uh, church was uh, dealing with, okay? And you remember how um, we compared and contrasted those letters on the basis of five things. Their depiction of Christ, 
the commendation that uh, uh, all but one of the churches received, the uh, um, rebuke that all but two of the churches received, the exhortation and the promise to the one who conquers or to the one who overcomes. Okay? And so in comparing and contrasting those, we um, paid particular attention to what how Christ was d- described. And remember, his description... Hmm, looks like someone's been skiing up here or something. Um, that um, the depiction of Christ is particularly suited to that church's needs and what was going on with that church. Okay? And so uh, uh, as we look through, remember, we talked about uh, the first letter was to Ephesus, and we called them erring Ephesus. They were the ones who had lost uh, or who had left their first love. And it was not just their first love of, you know, falling out of love with Christ. That may have been part of it, but it was really uh, in the mark of any good church. You want to know how Watermark's doing? Um, Ask, how are we doing in sharing the good news of Christ with others? And so each of these churches is about being a witness uh, for Christ. Remember, the the churches were described as lampstands, okay? And so what does a lampstand do? Well, it's to give light, okay? And that's what we're to be as a uh, church, that we are to give light shining in a dark region, okay? And so Erring Ephesus left its first love, and uh, um, they had stopped telling others about um, Christ. And remember, uh, one of the things we saw um, as we, we looked briefly at the book of Ephesus, a uh, book of Ephesians, was that Paul made note that uh, through their efforts and uh, through his being there for a couple of years, they had been able to evangelize all of Asia. Okay, so, you know, and and, uh, some scholars have said that, hey, that was probably 500 plus urban communities. And so their witness in all of Asia had had an impact, but they had left that first love and uh, um, the Lord took them to task for that and called them to do three things, to remember, to repent, and to do the deeds that they did at first. And the second, uh, the second church was Smyrna, suffering Smyrna. Remember, they were the ones who were suffering that uh, even though they lived in abject poverty, uh, the Lord said that they were rich, Okay. And he encouraged them to be faithful in suffering, even unto death. And we'll see um, this week how uh, people have taken the lesson of Smyrna to heart as uh, we look at the people who are martyred for their faith during the tribulation. Then we talked about uh, permissive Pergamum. Remember, they, they were allowing false teachers in their midst. Okay? And uh, um, we talked about tolerating Thyatira. They were tolerating evil in their midst. There was a woman uh, uh, that was called Jezebel, and we took a look at 1 Kings about uh, Jezebel, and she was one who incited her husband Ahab to lead Israel astray, and that's what this Jezebel was doing as well. You know, uh, they were told to rule, and the word for rule is a picture of shepherding. And they were uh, called to shepherd well. And that's what we're called to do, to shepherd ourselves first and then each other. And then we looked at uh, Sardis. Remember spiritless Sardis? They were a church who uh, uh, had a reputation of being alive, uh, 
and yet they were dead. And um, remember, the depiction of Christ was as the one who had the seven spirits of God, a picture of the sevenfold ministry of the, the Holy Spirit. And, you know, it's the Spirit that gives life. And then we talked about faithful um, Philadelphia. And they were doing well, and they were told to hold on to what they have because we can lose it. You know, Watermark's doing well. Watermark as a church is doing well. But where is Watermark going to be in 30 years? Will it be like Ephesus uh, that left its first love? Or will it be like Smyrna that suffered well, uh, even in the midst of very difficult times? Or will it be like Philadelphia that has held on to the truth of the Word of God and made that uh, something that um, has uh, just been a watchword for the church? And finally, uh, uh, we saw lukewarm Laodicea. You know, it was a banking center. It was uh, a wealthy city. They produced fine black wool. Uh, They uh, had a great medical school and produced an ISAB that was well known in the ancient world. And so from the world's perspective, they were doing great. But what did uh, Christ say about them? Well, he said that they were poor, naked, and blind. Uh, But the good news is that Christ offers hope even in the midst of that sort of situation. It offers hope to a lukewarm church. It wasn't hot or it wasn't cold. It wasn't useful. But Christ offers hope to that kind of church. And so, you know, in looking at those, remember we talked about that the first and last ones, Ephesus and Laodicea, uh, were the ones that were in the worst shape. They were the ones that were in the gravest danger. Excuse me. And uh, churches two and six, Smyrna and Philadelphia, were the ones that were doing the best. And the churches in the middle were kind of in the middle. They had something good about them, and there were some bad things about them as well. Okay? And so remember, as you read those letters, look at the depiction of Christ and how that speaks particularly to the needs of that church. Okay? All right, and so now we're ready to jump into week three. We're going to do uh, uh, Revelation 4 through 16. Got a lot to do, but um, as we start off, one of the things to remember for tonight is that the context is key. And so part of context is knowing where you are. And I'm going to show you a slide that tries to help you figure out, okay, so are we in heaven Um, as uh, that portion of uh, the chapters uh, being dealt with? Or are we on earth? And we'll look at how the scene jumps back and forth between heaven and earth. Okay? And so anytime I say the word context, it always makes me think of the six C's of Bible study. Okay? Anybody want to stand up and do the six C's of Bible study? Brian Jackson? I saw you shake your head immediately. Um, okay, so the six C's of Bible study start out with context. And you, every um, verse has a context within uh, the particular paragraph where it's found. And every paragraph has a particular context within the chapter. And the chapter has a context within uh, the book. And the book has a context, is it in the Old Testament or in the New Testament? Okay, so context is uh, a key for the study of the Word. And then 
You need to gather the clues. That's asking the who, what, why, when, where questions. You know, that's key for the study of the book of Revelation. Okay? The third C is to compare and contrast Scripture. And that is something that we saw last week um, where we went and looked at other Scripture to help us understand what was going on with the letters to the churches. And you'll see that that is also needed to be done in connection with uh, uh, chapters 4 through 16 especially. Compare and contrast with other Scripture. And then, and only then, do we start to consult outside uh, resources. Okay? And so that's, you know, study Bibles are great, but the thing I find is that, and I'm guilty of this just like anyone else, is that, you know, as soon as I hit something that in the text that's a little bit difficult, I don't do the first three C's. I immediately jump down to the footnotes and say, okay, so what does this mean? Well, that has a place, but it's only after you've done the hard work on your own to uh, uh, gather the clues and determine the context and have an opportunity to uh, uh, compare and contrast with other scripture, it's only then that you're prepared to consult outside sources, okay? Because if you, if you go immediately to the outside sources, it's not going to stick with you. You know, the study that I do on my own is the sort of stuff that sticks with me. And when I've done that study on my own, then I've set myself up to learn from uh, other men and women who have gone before me and uh, um, uh, are writing about things that, you know, uh, I just don't have the uh, training to have uh, studied or understood. And so, yes, we need to stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us, but we've got to do our own work. So that's the fourth C. Context, gather the clues, um, um, compare and contrast Scripture, consult outside sources, and now we're down to the point where we want to draw conclusions about what we've read. Draw conclusions. And then finally, the rubber meets the road on the sixth C, and that's um, committing to take action. That's the so what that we always end with uh, in this class. That's where uh, you take the truths of Scripture and you put them into practice in your daily lives. Commit to take action. Okay, six C's. No charge for that. That's not part of Revelation. Okay, so, um, and now we're to the fun part of the night where we play Revelation or Revelation. Okay, does everybody know how we play this game? All right, everybody with me? Okay, so the questions for tonight. Who was found worthy to open the scroll and break its seals in Revelation 5? Okay, that's a pretty easy question, but it has a B part. Name one characteristic from Revelation 5 about the one who was found worthy. Okay, sir, I saw your hand go up first. And remember, the way we play this, if you're here for the first time tonight, um, if you answer the question correctly, you will receive a great little uh, um, commentary on the book of Revelation by Charles Ryrie that Dave Liner came up to me today and said, hey, I know where you get all your stuff. And he is exactly right. I get a lot of it right here, okay? Um, so this is a great little book. Um, and if you don't, if you answer it correctly, you get a book. If you don't, then that's where the fun begins because you get to reveal something about yourself to everybody else, okay? All right, are, are you ready? The lamb, all right, so that's right. 
And give me one characteristic of the lamb. He was described with four S's. I'm really helping now. I want you to succeed. There is the first S, the lamb that is slain. So here is a book for you. Come on up and get it. Well done. All right. Who can give me another uh, S? Seven horns. What do the seven, seven horns stand for? It's a picture of strength. Okay? Picture of strength. All right? And you also said something else. Seven And seven eyes is a picture of... Uh, it, it helps us and tells us it's the Holy Spirit, but it's also a picture of how Christ scrutinizes the world. Um, He's omniscient. He knows what's going on. And that's why he can be trusted as our Savior. One of many reasons. Okay? And there's one more. What was the fourth? It's actually probably about the second one. Well, that was part of it. That's part of the eyes. What was the lamb doing? He was standing. Okay? And so, you know, we might think that, well, he'd be seated because he'd be on his throne or something. Uh, But the idea of standing means that um, he's not finished with his work. He has work to do. So he is standing ready for action. Okay? All right, so that's good. The second one, what's the mission of the 144,000 sealed in Revelation 7? And this one has a B part as well. What verse supports your answer? Yes, ma'am. Well done. I thought that was a hard question. Uh, they, um, what she said was that they were to serve God. Okay? And uh, she cited verse 15. I, I uh, also saw it in verse 3. They were to be servants of God. And I think the way that uh, plays out is the way that uh, um, we've seen uh, the letters to the churches where um, the um, church was to be a light to others. And so this service to God includes the idea that they are to be witnesses to the watching world. And these 144,000 we'll see are protected so that they uh, will not be harmed during the tribulation period until they finish their work. Okay? All right, so obviously these weren't very hard questions. All right, so th- these, uh, this next one I'm, is really easy. So which of the three series of judgments, the seal, trumpet, or bowl judgment, impacts a quarter of the Earth's population? Hmm, maybe it's a little harder than I thought. Yes, sir, Kevin? That, you know, I, I tried to help. They are in order. That's exactly right. Come on up here, buddy, and grab a book. Um, so we're going to see that the sealed judgments impact a quarter of the earth. The trumpet judgments impact a third of mankind. And then finally, the bold judgments impact everyone. All right? Okay. Uh, something else that we've done every week is we've talked about Daniel's 70 weeks timeline. Do we feel like we're getting this? Okay, because it is the thing that gives us uh, the idea that the tribulation period is seven, we, uh, seven years long, uh, and w- we have described it as Daniel's 70th week. 
okay, where um, God's going to finish uh, dealing with uh, a number of things outlined in Daniel 9, okay? And so we have the 69 weeks, 483 years that run from the Artaxerxes' decree to rebuild Jerusalem in 444 B.C., uh, you can read about it in Nehemiah 2, 5 through 8. And that goes up through the triumphal entry of Christ into uh, Jerusalem. And then Daniel 9 talks about the anointed one being cut off, which I think is a reference to Christ being crucified. And then we have the great parenthesis of history where uh, the church age uh, comes in. And it was a mystery in the Old Testament. You can see it described as a mystery in Ephesians 3, 1 through 10. Then the next great event will be the rapture. Uh, you can read about that in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. And uh, um, while it comes before the start of the tribulation period, it's not the initiating event of the tribulation. That honor goes to, uh, as Daniel 9 tells us, the uh, execution of a peace treaty with Israel that I think the Antichrist is going to uh, negotiate. Okay? And when that peace treaty starts, you start the seven-year clock running for the tribulation. Midway through, uh, the Antichrist is going to break that treaty. He's going to erect an image of himself to be worshipped and demand to be worshipped by the whole world in uh, um, the midpoint of the tribulation period. Okay? Um, that's called the abomination of desolation. You can read about it in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse where Christ talks about it and even mentions Daniel specifically by name, okay? And then uh, uh, the last half of the tribulation is something called the Great Tribulation um, by um, some scholars, and I think it's a great word because tribulation there will reach its maximum uh, uh, effect and just the, the it will become uh, worse than... You can even imagine. You know, Hollywood cannot make up the stuff that we're going to read about tonight. Okay? And then that will be terminated by Christ's return at the second coming. He'll initiate a thousand-year reign uh, where he sits on the physical throne of David in Jerusalem. And uh, um, that'll conclude uh, with a, a satanic revolt at the end of the thousand-year period. And we'll talk more about that next week. And uh, then the great white throne judgment, uh, which I think will be for unbelievers only. And then we'll start uh, eternity. Okay? And, you know, eternity is going to be fun. We're not going to be just sitting around strumming harps. But I think we'll work. You know, Adam and Eve worked in the garden before the fall. And work will be um, meaningful. And it'll have a purpose. And it will honor God. And it'll be part of our worship of God uh, that'll be our work. And you know, that's not unlike today. Um, wherever you are, that's your ministry. Does that make sense? It took me a long time to learn that. You know, I practiced law for about 25 years before I realized that my ministry was not what I did outside of my law practice, but my ministry was, in fact, my law practice. And you know, man, that really changed my law practice because you, you just... You know, the chance to uh, pray with clients and to share with them the good news about Christ and the chance to uh, tell them that, hey, you know, even though it looks like um, your life is spinning out of control, Mr. Client, 
Uh, God has really got you in the palm of his hand, and he can be trusted with what's coming. You know, um, I represented a guy in front of a, a Senate hearing in Washington, D.C., and uh, it was a room about four times the size of this, and it was packed all the way back, and there was this phalanx of cameras all the way around it. And I looked over uh, at my client, and I said to him, hmm, buddy, we are not in Kansas anymore. And uh, um, we just had a chance before he went and testified at this congressional hearing, the Senate hearing, uh, to just pray about what we were uh, getting ready to do. And, you know, it was a chance for my uh, work to become my ministry. And that's the way uh, I think eternity is going to be. And so that's what we're to do right now. You know, um, if you think that your ministry is what you do here at Watermark or whatnot, it's not. It's what you do in your neighborhood and in your workplace. And when you go to the store, that's where our ministry is because we're to be a light to the watching world. We're to be that lampstand, okay? That's what the church is. The church is you and me. The church is in this building. And the church is to be a lampstand to the watching world. All right, we better keep going before I start preaching or something. Um, all right. Let's see. So let's review quickly some of the terms we looked at the first week. And we'll keep going back to some of these things just to make sure that they're cemented in here. Uh, the rapture, um, you know, we've uh, thrown that out. It's the removal of the church. Uh, I think it will happen before the... Uh, um, beginning of the tribulation, uh, and the, both those who are believers uh, in Christ who are alive at the time of the rapture and those who have died in Christ during the church age will be removed from the earth to be with Christ forever, and that will be pretty glorious. Uh, the tribulations, the seven-year period of unparalleled trouble we've been talking about, it culminates in the second coming of Christ, and we have... Um, singled out the last three and a half years. Some commentators call it the Great Tribulation because of just the hell on earth that's going to happen during that time frame. The second coming is where we put our stake in the ground that, you know, we hold um, all the things that we're talking about pretty loosely except the fact that Christ is coming back. And that's where we put a stake in the ground. Okay? And then finally... Uh, um, when he does come back, he will institute a thousand-year reign of just um, heaven on earth. You know, we've had seven years of hell on earth. Then we're going to have a thousand years of heaven on earth because our king will rule physically from Jerusalem. Okay? So those are terms to keep in mind as we go through. Remember that we've identified as a key verse, a verse that gives us a working outline of the book, Revelation 1.19. John is told to write. Um, it's one of, I think, 12 excuse me, instructions to write. Uh, the things which you've seen, which that's chapter 1. The things which are, the letters to the seven churches, um, chapters 2 and 3. And then tonight we start looking at the things which will take place after this, is what the Greek literally says, or after these things. Okay, And we're going to see tonight that Revelation 4.1, open your Bibles to Revelation 4, and you might as well keep them open for the rest of the evening. But you'll see that uh, uh, verse 1 begins with the little phrase, 
after this. And it lets us know that, hey, here's where the future things are starting. Okay? So now, I'm going to tell you about 15 different times an overview of these chapters. Okay, so someone keep count for me, but I, I want you to have cemented in your mind just how the chapters flow and what John is doing in these different chapters. Okay, so we're going to start and we're going to see a prelude in heaven in chapters 4 and 5. Then we're going to deal with the sealed judgments um, that will be mostly set forth in chapter 6. And then we'll, uh, in chapter 7, uh, we'll have the 144,000 sealed. And 8 and 9, we'll go back and we'll have the trumpet judgments. And then we'll have uh, the two witnesses in 11. Um, John will also identify in 12 and 13 the seven great persons of the end times drama, is how I've described them. And it's not great in the sense that you want to grow up and be like each one of them, but great in the sense of important for our story. Okay? And then chapter 14, you really can see a little overview, a little outline of the whole end times in chapter 14. And then finally tonight, uh, the last thing we'll talk about are the seven bowl judgments. Um, and can you see there's a pattern here? And we'll talk about that of grace, then judgment. Um, but also, we have three things that move the story along in chapters 4 through 16. And those three things are the three sets of seven judgments each. And so then um, John adds what today we'd call color commentary to help us flesh out and to understand more fully what's going on with respect to the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. Okay? Are you with me on that? And so as you read through the book of Revelation, by knowing where you are, you'll be able to know, okay, are we dealing with one of the judgments uh, that moves the story along, or are we dealing with the color commentary that's adding additional information about the persons or the places or the events that are going on, okay? Everybody with me on that? Does that make sense? Yes, ma'am. Um, well, chapter 10 is really part of the color commentary as well, okay? And it was just, you know, I can't do it all in uh, the course of uh, this evening. But if you look at chapter 10, it's something that where John is told that, hey, he has a role to play in prophesying as a part of all this, okay? So it is more of the color commentary that lets you know kind of what's going on with John. Does that make sense? So don't ignore chapter 10, but I'm just trying to give you a broad overview that'll be a framework that you can use as you study this book on your own from here on out. That's the whole purpose here, is to give you an overview so that you will know where you are in the book and that you yourselves, as you study, will be able to add uh, additional knowledge by just um, understanding exactly where you are in the book. Okay? Any other questions about that? All right, let's keep moving. All right, so there's overview number one. Here's effectively overview number two. Because what I've tried to do here is to give you uh, an outline, if you will, of the tribulation. Okay, so you remember this uh, slide... 
way back over uh, right here, you can see this little um, period from the peace treaty of, uh, with Israel to the second coming. This little time frame right in here is um, what I've tried to give you a fuller picture of here. Okay, and so you can see the rapture uh, identified, the peace treaty with Israel, the initiating event. Um, one of the things you need to deal with is when do these things happen? And so do the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments all happen in the second half of Revelation? Maybe so. Um, I think that some of the seal judgments may uh, effectively start sooner, though. And so, you know, there's a big question mark about, you know, exactly where do the seal judgments fit in there. There's a question mark about the witnesses, were, the two witnesses we're told uh, will prophesy for 1,260 days. Well, is that the first half? Is that the second half of the tribulation? Or is it some overlapping period that starts partly in the first half and continues into the second half? Well, we'll talk about that in just a little bit. Um, Ezekiel 38 and 39, the Magog invasion, is something that uh, commentators are all over the uh, map on. Does it happen uh, before the tribulation even starts? It, does it happen in the first part of the tribulation? Um, I tend to think it happens sometime in the uh, at least the first half of the tribulation, if not even actually uh, a little bit before it. You can read about it in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Um, things that we do know is that the abomination of desolation will be uh, erected sometime uh, or worship will be demanded of it sometime at the midpoint of the tribulation. Okay? And uh, I used Oscar to be my uh, abomination of desolation there. Um, there was no political commentary uh, meant by that, but uh, hey, there's a little statue that... I don't know if that's what the image will be, but uh, um, it will be such that um, uh, the beast and the false prophet will demand that the entire world worships that image of the uh, Antichrist. Um, at that point, uh, he'll break the treaty with uh, um, Israel. He'll end sacrifices. Um, I think the two witnesses were likely to be killed sometime in that time frame because getting them out of the way is one of the things I think uh, will happen so that he can demand worship uh, by the entire world. And uh, Revelation 17, the destruction of religious Babylon, that could well happen in that time frame as well. But we'll talk about those things. Um, I'm be uh, fairly confident that the trumpet and bold judgments will happen in the last half of the tribulation, the great tribulation, when it's like hell on earth. And as you can see, there will also be martyrdom uh, going on in a big sort of way during that time frame. You'll see that at the end I have the Armageddon campaigns. Don't think single battle. Think war. Um, will it last for a couple of years? Will it last for uh, several months? It's hard to say, uh, but I think it will be a campaign, not simply a single battle. Uh, but it will culminate in uh, the armies of the world gathered around the valley of uh, Megiddo. And uh, that valley is uh, huge. It's like uh, 12 by 16 miles. 
but it's not big enough to accommodate all the armies of the world. And so it's likely that that is just a representative uh, place that um, they'll be camped out all over 200 miles uh, of Israel in that particular area. Okay? But think campaign, not single battle. But they'll culminate and turn from fighting each other to fighting against Christ when he returns. Okay? And up here at the top, you can see I've got the judgment seat of Christ and the wedding feast. These are things that are going on up in heaven. And, you know, the judgment seat of Christ is not something that uh, you'll hear often uh, taught from the pulpit on Sunday morning. Uh, But that's one of the things we'll talk about next week. And it's important that you understand the judgment seat of Christ. Because if you are a believer in Christ, um, you are going to have the opportunity to appear before Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. So you need to understand what goes on there and understand uh, um, the purpose of it and uh, how it's going to impact you. I have to tell you, frankly, it's something, and I'll say this next week for sure, that I have dreaded. But I've changed my thinking on that through um, my study here and uh, uh, just talking with folks and whatnot to uh, getting to the point where I'm saying, you know, if there is something about me or my past um, that does not honor Christ, well, I want it gone anyway. I want to leave the old stuff behind. And I want the new stuff to... Um, be the basis of my relationship with Christ. I want things that honor him. And so the judgment seat of Christ where um, the, the old works are, are done away with uh, and uh, the things that I've done uh, that have honored Christ celebrated, that's going to be a fun thing, okay? We'll talk about that. Uh, and then we'll uh, also talk about uh, next week, the wedding feast of the Lamb that's in Revelation 19. Then that'll conclude with the second coming, and uh, there is the uh, seven-year tribulation period. So that's overview number two. All right? Any questions about that? All right, let's keep moving. Thank you. All right, so... One of the things I want you to walk away with tonight is understanding that there really is a pattern to what's going on in this section of the book of Revelation, okay? And it's a pattern that holds true for our lives right now, is that God deals with us in grace before he ever deals with us in judgment, okay? And the same thing's true for us today. It may not be judgment per se, but it may be discipline, and, but he gives us grace opportunity after grace opportunity to um, change our conduct, to change our mind, to repent before uh, he sends discipline. But remember, as we talked about with one of the churches that received discipline, uh, I think it was Laodicea, the fact that they were being disciplined underscored that they belonged to Christ. Okay? And so, you know, that's the mark of being a a son or a daughter of Christ, is that uh, you receive discipline. And nobody likes that, but the fact is that uh, um, he disciplines us because he loves us and wants us to be like him. Okay, so give me a helping of that. Uh, But here's the pattern, grace, then judgment. And so again, we see the same thing, prologue, grace. We're up in heaven to start with in chapters 4 and 5. And then we have the seal judgments. 
And then we have between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, a grace interlude. And uh, that involves the 144,000 witnesses being sealed. And we also see worship in heaven, uh, all in chapter 7. Okay, and then chapter 8, we have the seventh uh, seal. And out of the seventh seal come the seven trumpet judgments. And so grace, then judgment. And then between the sixth trumpet judgment and the seventh trumpet judgment, we have another grace interlude, okay? And that's chapters 10 through 14, basically. And, um, you know, the the high points of uh, that section are the two witnesses being sent. These guys I call the original CNN moment for uh, the end times. They will be CNN worthy. Uh, But we also have worship, witness, and warning in chapter 14, okay? And then we conclude with the final culmination of uh, God's judgment on uh, sinful man in the bold judgments. Grace, then judgment. So remember that pattern as we go through. Okay, we've also talked about... Determining the context for where you are. And here I've tried to give you a little overview of the way I see these things playing out and where are we when these things are happening. And so you can see the pattern is you bounce back and forth between heaven and earth. Okay, and so take this slide and go home this week and read it for yourself and compare and see if you think I'm right on it. And if you see it differently, well, let's talk about it. We can talk about it next week, okay? Um, But I'm giving you this so you'll just have an understanding of are we in heaven or are we on earth? Because sometimes it's hard to tell. Particularly in the beginning of chapter 14, uh, scholars are split on that right down the middle. You know, some think that we're in heaven and some think we're on earth, okay? Okay? But that helps you understand, it gives you context for understanding what's going on in that particular chapter of the book of Revelation. Okay? All right. Here is kind of an overview of the judgments. But before we start in on the judgments, I want to talk a little bit about... uh, um, the prologue in heaven in chapters 4 and 5. So let's open to 4 and 5. And I'm going to just hit a couple of highlights as we go through that. Chapter 4 really focuses in on uh, God, and chapter 5 focuses in on Christ, the Lamb. We see um, throne being mentioned uh, at the beginning of chapter 4. Um, there are at least 45 references to thrones in uh, the book of Revelation. It uh, sometimes is called the book of thrones. Okay, and the throne in chapter 4 is occupied by um, uh, God the Father, I believe, and it's surrounded by 24 elders uh, and four living creatures and a multitude of others. Okay, so who are the 24 elders? Any thoughts? Churches, pardon, disciples, spirits, Um, all those are possibilities, okay? Um, Because it describes them as elders, 
I think it probably, uh, it, it's not a term that's used of uh, angelic beings. Okay, so I think we're dealing with people here. Um, I think they're representatives, they could be representatives of, some scholars say that, well, they're um, the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. Um, it could be. You know, at this time frame, I don't think that the Old Testament saints are resurrected yet. And so... Um, um, probably uh, the majority of scholars would come out and say that uh, they're likely representatives of the church. If you look at Matthew uh, 19.28, I think it is. Um, Yeah, Matthew 19.28, the apostles are are promised thrones in heaven. Okay, so they may be 12 of them, and maybe there are 12 others. Um, The 24 elders, uh, some have said, well, you know, there were 24 orders of the priesthood in the Old Testament. And so maybe these are representatives of the church uh, during that time frame. That's one of those things that we just don't have a definitive answer on. If I had to pick just one, it's probably, uh, to me, representatives of the church. And I think 12 of them are likely to be uh, 12 apostles. Okay, and then we have four living creatures who are also around the throne. Who are those? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, pardon? Cherubim? Um, maybe. Uh, I would say probably not cherubim, but maybe seraphim. Because if you go look in, uh, uh, let's see, in um, Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel 1, you'll see that the seraphim are described as having... Uh, six wings, like the four living creatures are described as having six wings, okay, and eyes, and they, um, you know, worship Christ and whatnot. So there are a lot of similarities between the seraphim and uh, um, the four living creatures. Could be seraphim. Um, You know, one of the um, orders of angels uh, are seraphim. Commentators also say that it could be a representative of the attributes or qualities of God. That one's a little bit harder for me to get my arms around. Um, so, you know, um, again, scholars are all over the place on who these are, but if I was going to put a stake in the ground, I'd probably say, hey, Isaiah 6, 1 and 2, and Ezekiel uh, one ten and following verses um, would say these, uh, to me, probably are... Um, angelic beings, seraphim, okay? And then also present we have, um, in chapter 5, we have the focus on the lamb. And we've already talked about four characteristics of the lamb, that he's standing because he has work to do, he's slain, uh, but he's now alive. He's uh, got seven horns, a picture of strength and uh, dominion, and uh, he also is said to have seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, that he is scrutinizing what's happening uh, throughout the uh, earth. But the lamb is also described, uh, four reasons are given why he is worthy. This is in verses 9 and 10 in chapter 5. He's worthy because he was slain in our place. And he's worthy because he's ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And he's worthy because he's made them a kingdom and priest to our God. And he's also worthy because he's made them in such a way that they will reign on earth. 
That's pretty cool. And so if you're keeping up with uh, um, what um, the book of Revelation reveals about Christ, put those things down. It also says uh, at the end of, uh, um, let's see, in verse um, 12, it says that he is worthy to receive seven things. Uh, He's worthy to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. That is who our um, Savior is. He is worthy to receive those things. And you'll see in uh, chapter 7, verse 12, uh, there's another list of the things that the Lamb is worthy to receive that's uh, similar but not identical. Okay? And so that's what's happening in chapters 4 and 5. We see this grace prologue to uh, the beginning of the judgments. And so we're up in heaven in chapters 4 and 5, and we focus in 4 on, on God the Father and in 5 on the Lamb. And as we start the judgments in chapter 6, um, I've got up here three things about them. I think that they are sequential. I think that they happen chronologically. And they also definitely are intensifying in their impact. Okay, the seal judgments uh, are terrible, but the trumpet judgments are worse. And the trumpet judgments are awful, but the bowl judgments are even worse. And there are two different ways of looking at the uh, uh, judgments. Uh, The first is called the recapitulation view. And that's simply a big word for uh, saying that it's a different telling of the same judgments. And so those who hold that view say, hey, well, the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments are really the same judgments. They're just being described in different ways. Okay? Um, The other view is like a telescope, the telescopic view. And, you know, as you pull out a telescope, you know, one section uh, gives, um, brings out the next section. And to me, that's the best way to understand these judgments. That the sealed judgments pour into the uh, trumpet judgments. And the trumpet judgments uh, ultimately result in the bold judgments. Okay? And so think about uh, a telescope being uh, brought out. And what you'll see is that the last seal opens up the seven trumpet judgments. And the last trumpet opens up the bold judgments. And so um, I think that the judgments are linear, they're connected, and they build in severity, okay? And uh, they're all encompassed in this scroll that the Lamb in chapter 5 is found worthy to open, okay? So they all fit within this scroll that kind of gives us an overview of God's plan for uh, the end of times, Does that make sense? I know this is a lot to throw at you, but think about uh, the uh, with the seventh seal, we open up the seven trumpets. And with the seventh trumpet, we open up the seven bowl judgments and how they kind of pour one into another. Okay? And so uh, as you think about them, think sequential, chronological, and intensifying that the trumpet judgments follow the seal judgments, and the bowl judgments follow the trumpet judgments. And there may not be a lot of time between them, 
but uh, I think that they do follow one with after the other. And one of the things to keep in mind, really the most important thing to keep in mind, and remember we answered the question about the seals impacting a quarter of the earth's population and the trumpets a third and um, the bowls impacting all of uh, mankind. Um, that underscores that God is in control even of those judgments. It's not a quarter of the population plus a, a few hundred thousand more. It's a quarter of the population. And this underscores that he is in control of what's happening on the earth. These judgments underscore his sovereignty and his sovereign control over... He's not just you know letting Satan run wild, but he has a plan that is sovereignly being played out in the lives of people on earth, okay? And as you think about the judgments, uh, you think that, yes, they're terrible, and they are God's judgment on sin, uh, but they are also the things that are giving um, millions of people an opportunity to turn from their sinful ways to believe in God, to trust in Christ, to respond to the witnessing of the 144,000 sealed witnesses, Okay, and so with the judgment comes a uh, a grace opportunity to trust, and that's the way our God is: is that even in the midst of judgment, He will still respond to people whose hearts will uh, be given to Him. Does that make sense? You know, that's the way He deals with us, even in the midst of judgment. Okay, something else to keep in mind about uh, uh, these three sets of judgments is that they have kind of a four plus three format um, where the first four um, impact the earth and the final three are cosmic in uh, orientation, okay? And so as you read through them, keep that in mind. If you're dealing with the fifth trumpet or the sixth trumpet, You know, there's some wild things going on that are more cosmic in nature rather than just happening and impacting uh, the earth. Yes, there are impacts on the earth from all the judgments, uh, but think, you know, impact on the earth for the first four, the last three have a cosmic orientation, okay? And so let's dive into just the sealed judgments now. And one of the things that's great and very helpful in looking at those is that as you compare the sealed judgments that are described in uh, Matthew 6, we see seals 1 through 6, okay? Um, When you go back to Matthew 24 and in the Olivet Discourse and compare what Christ said was going to happen you see the parallels, the dramatic parallels between what he predicted and the way the sealed judgments are played out and described in Revelation 6 and then, you know, what's happening in Revelation 7 as well. Okay? And so if you're in Revelation 6, let's just go through these judgments right quick. And you see the first one is the white horse, someone conquering to con- coming to conquer, You see that he has a bow, but no arrows are mentioned. Um, I think this is a picture of the Antichrist. And the bow without arrows may well be an indication that his initial victory is a bloodless one, that he negotiates his way into power. Okay? 
Um, and, you know, what did Christ say? Well, he said that there are going to be false Christ coming. And then as you go down the line, the red horse is a picture of war. And the black horse, the third seal, a picture of famine. And you see how these line up just perfectly with what the Lord said was going to be happening uh, in the end times. And remember, the whole context for the Olivet Discourse is um, Christ's disciples coming to him and saying, when's this going to happen? You know, the same sort of questions we ask. And they also asked, what are going to be the signs of your coming? And then finally they asked, uh, what are going to be the signs of the end of the age? And it's amazing how what Christ did in answering lines up so uh, nicely with the description of the sealed judgments. Okay? And so the fourth one is a, a picture of death. You know, you've heard the term, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Well, that's where this comes from, from the book of Revelation. Okay? Not from Grantland Rice talking about Notre Dame football. Um, he got it from the book of Revelation, okay? And so the, there are, the first four judgments are the four uh, horsemen. White horse, red horse, black horse, pale horse. The uh, word for pale really is green and kind of it underscores the sickly green um, color that uh, dead people have, okay? And so... And we see uh, uh, persecution and martyrdom was predicted, and we see that described in the fifth seal. And then finally, the sixth seal is uh, uh, terror and uh, cosmic signs uh, happening. And then finally, um, the Lord predicted that there would be worldwide evangelism, and we'll see that um, the beginning of that in Revelation 7 with the sealing of the 144,000 uh, Jews. Okay? So those are the sealed judgments. And as you read through that, it, I hope this helps you understand. Go back and compare and contrast those with uh, Matthew 24, okay? And so it will help explain more about what's going on with those judgments. A couple to pay attention to. Um, the fifth seal is uh, the martyrs. And what question are they asking? It says, well, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And you know, the answer that uh, they are given really is the answer to the problem of evil. And look at that. It says, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And you know the answer to the problem of evil about, you know, Lord, why do you allow these horrible things to happen? And the bottom line is that he allows us the grace to uh, be uh, sinful men, uh, the opportunity to turn against him and whatnot, because he is giving more and more people a chance to finally trust in him. Okay, and, you know, the answer to these martyrs was, hey, hang in there for a little while longer because the number is not complete of those who have trusted in me and been willing to give their lives uh, for me. And the same thing's true for us today. Um, the bottom line is that, hey, God is tearing in coming back and executing his judgment on earth to give more people a chance to trust in his son. Yes, sir.
No, I think these martyrs are tribulation saints who have trusted in Christ during the tribulation and who have been martyred for their faith during the tribulation. No, the rapture happens before the tribulation, and these folks have been killed during the tribulation itself. Okay? I think these are tribulational saints who have been martyred during that time frame. They were saved during the tribulation by the witnessing maybe of the 144,000 or someone else who has been saved during the tribulation. There are going to be people who are saved uh, by believing in Christ during the tribulation. They won't be Christians. They will be tribulational saints. Okay, Christians are those who have trusted in Christ during the church age. Okay, Back here. Um, that's a reference to Second Thessalonians 2 uh, when it talks about the restraining influences removed from the earth. Well, you know, the Holy Spirit is, om- is omnipresent, just like, you know, uh, the other members of the Godhead are. And I think that his um, ministry will still be happening on earth, but he will uh, not be here as uh, indwelling in the church because the church will have been removed. But, you know, before... Um, he came and uh, indwelled believers at Pentecost. He had a ministry on earth during the Old Testament and also um, during the uh, uh, time when Christ was on earth, okay? Uh, and I think it will, it, he'll go back to having a ministry like that rather than indwelling uh, the tribulational saints. Does that make sense? And, um, you know, I think it's going to be... Remember what Daniel's 70th week is. It's the completion of God's dealing with not only the Gentiles, but also uh, the completion of his dealing with the Jews, as well as the millennial kingdom will be that as well, because then we'll have in the millennial kingdom the completion of the Abrahamic covenant where uh, Israel will be given the land that it was promised. And we'll also have the uh, literal fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, which you can find in Second uh, Samuel 7, where uh, David was promised that one of his descendants would be on uh, his throne forever. And that's going to come true in the person of Christ. All right, let me keep mushing. And remember, I'm going to stick around here afterwards, so hang on to your questions, write them down so that we can talk about them. Okay, um, so there is one question that was asked, how long? There's also another question that was asked, and that is, uh, um, who can stand? Who can stand uh, um, the wrath of the Lamb? And the answer is given in chapter 7 in verse 9, you see a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne. And those who belong to Christ will be able to stand. Okay? Now we come to the first grace interruption in the sealing of the 144,000 witnesses, uh, 12,000 from each of the tribes of uh, Israel. And that seal is a guarantee of ownership and security. Uh, you can look at Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, and also 2 Corinthians 1, 22, 21 and 22, where the Holy Spirit is described for us as uh, in the church age as a guarantee, uh, that it's a guarantee of our inheritance. In the same way, these folks will be sealed in the sense that they will be protected 
from what's going to be happening during the tribulation period so that they can do the work of God during the tribulation period. Okay? So after that grace interruption, now begins the trumpet judgments. Okay? And you see... Let's see... Here are the trumpet judgments. And you see again, the first uh, four have an impact on earth, sea, waters, and then the sun, moon, and stars impacting what's happening and the light that they give. And then the last three, we have locust demons uh, that are, you know, man, that was quite a descriptive chapter in uh, uh, 9. And then we see um, that angels are turned loose to kill a third of mankind. And then we have another grace interruption that we'll talk about. And then the final one, the, um, we have loud voices in heaven, the seventh trumpet, and the opening of the seven bowls. Okay, so let's talk quickly about the trumpet judgments. Uh, if you go and compare the trumpet judgments especially and the bowl judgments with the uh, plagues, uh, the Exodus plagues, um, go check that out and you'll see that the uh, trumpet and bowl judgments have a lot of similarities to the plagues uh, that were uh, enacted by Moses against uh, Pharaoh in Egypt. Okay, uh, Several of them match up uh, just perfectly. For example, uh, the hail and fire of the first trumpet is similar to, uh, in description to the seventh plague in Exodus 9, 23 and 24. Okay, And so the first four trumpets deal with aspects of the physical world that are taken for granted. The trees, the grass, the water, the sun, the moon, the stars. Things that we just take for granted. And you're going to see the horrific impact that when those things are affected, uh, really that they have been a uh, picture of God's grace blessing to us just in the way that uh, um, they uh, allow us to exist here on earth. And when the, the grass is burned up and the trees are burned up, it's going to have an unbelievable impact uh, on the people. Okay, so the first four trumpets aren't uh, tough enough. Then here come uh, what are described as three woes. Okay? And the three woes are simply trumpets five, six, and seven. And I think they're called woes because they underscore the increasing severity of the judgments. And if you look over in chapter 9, at the end of chapter 9, we're at the uh, end of the sixth trumpet there. In verse 20, it says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. And, you know, I really take three um, realities from uh, Revelation 9. The first is that um, there is an unseen spiritual world that we just can't see right now, but uh, in the midst of these judgments, people are going to be able to see and be impacted by it. And then next, one of the realities of the judgments, again, is the uh, justice and the sovereignty of God. And the third reality we see from Revelation 9 is just the hardness of sinful heart. 
the hardness of sinful hearts. And so despite the horrible nature of these judgments, and despite knowing that these judgments come from God, they do not acknowledge God. They don't turn away from their uh, murders and sorceries and uh, immorality and whatnot, but instead they shake their fist at God. And you know, gang, that's you and me, but for the grace that has been given to us to trust in Christ, the hardness of our hearts. And so these realities underscore that despite the horrible nature of these judgments, there will be some who will repent and turn back to him, but many, most, will shake their fists at God. And then after the uh, uh, sixth trumpet, we have another grace interlude. And this is uh, what I've described as the CNN moment with the two witnesses in Revelation 11. And you see in Revelation uh, 11, 5, and 6, their powers. They have the power to um, keep it from raining. They have the power to... um, um, Fire comes out of their mouths and, um, you know... um, They have uh, unbelievable powers. No one can harm them until what? Until their work is done. And, you know, um, that's the principle of their death. At some point, their witnessing will be done, and God will allow them to be killed. And it's just like you and me today. When we are in the will of God, you know, we're immortal as long as he still has something for us to do. Okay? Wagner says that a bunch, that... Hey, until God is done with you, you know, unless you do something stupid, which is not in the plan of God, then he's going to take care of you. We need not fear death. We can be like the Smyrnans where um, we don't have to fear death. Okay? We can be faithful unto death because um, it, it is such a liberating thing to know that, hey, God is going to take care of me as long as he has something for me to do. And the same thing is true of these two witnesses. But... There will come a point when he's finished with their witnessing, okay? And he's going to take away that grace opportunity for those uh, who hear and respond to those two witnesses, and he's going to allow the Antichrist to kill them, and their bodies are going to suffer the ultimate indignity of not being buried and lying in the street for three and a half days. And then we're going to have the original CNN moment when these guys, uh, with everyone watching, all of a sudden come to life again, and are raised to heaven. And it says, as their enemies watched. And you know, when they die, it's the only uh, reference to rejoicing in the entire tribulation period. And it says that people, it's going to be like Christmas, that the people on earth are going to give presents to celebrate that the uh, two witnesses are dead. Um, That's in chapter 11. If you look at 11.10, it says, And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. And that's actually a little technical term that John uses. Those who dwell on the earth refers to unbelievers who inhabit the earth during the tribulation time frame. So if you see earth dweller, think, hey, these are not the good guys, okay? And so they're going to rejoice over the fact that these two guys are dead, but just wait. Um, Three and a half days later, they're going to be raised and brought up to heaven. 
That will be pretty fun. Well, uh, that's a great question. The question was, who are the two witnesses? Some scholars say, hey, they have powers like Moses and Elijah, and maybe it's Moses and Elijah who have come back. Uh, Others say, well, you know, no, uh, Moses died, so he's probably not going to be brought back to do this. And uh, uh, it may be Enoch and Elijah, because both of them didn't die. They were translated uh, without dying. And so maybe it's Enoch and Elijah. Uh, I think the... Um, biblical answer is, we don't know. Uh, You know? We just don't know. But they are going to have powers like Moses and Elijah, okay? But it's likely to be two people that God just raises up during the tribulation time to serve as his witnesses. And so the short answer is, I don't know. Uh, But it is clear that they are going to have powers that are very similar to the sort of powers that Moses and Elijah exercised. Okay? So, great question. Thanks for asking that. All right. As we uh, transition into um, 12, 13, and 14, I want to do uh, a couple of things. Okay? So, 12, we see a description of important characters. And in 13, we see uh, the description of the two evil rulers of the end times drama, Uh, the beast and the false prophet, who together with Satan um, make up the satanic trinity. Okay, You know, Satan is the great counterfeiter, and so he uh, says, hey, I'm the God figure here, and I've got uh, the beast to be my Christ figure, and I've got the false prophet to be like the Holy Spirit. And so those three together, uh, you'll see um, the beast and the false prophet described in Revelation 13. And then in 14, we see Christ's ultimate uh, triumph uh, prophesied. And as I look at 12 and 13, um, it strikes me that these two chapters really kind of set the table for the players in the end times drama, okay? And so um, we see the a pregnant woman is described. I think that's a picture of Israel. Okay? The red dragon is a picture of Satan or um, of the uh, beast's empire. And we see the male child who ro- rules over the nations described in Revelation 12.5. I think that's a picture of Christ. And you'll see in uh, Revelation 19 that he's also described as ruling over the nations. And then in um, 12.7, we see uh, war in heaven breaks out, and Michael and his angels are on one side fighting against uh, Satan and his angels. And so the archangel Michael is one of the uh, players in the end times drama. And then the next one may not be quite as obvious because uh, it's described that that Satan makes war against the woman, Israel, and uh, her offspring. And I describe that as the remnant. You know, God always has a remnant. Elijah says, hey, uh, I'm the only one left. And the Lord answers him and says, no, there's 7,000 others who have not bowed their knee to Baal. And God always has a remnant. And you'll see uh, in 1217 a description of the remnant that Satan is warring against. Okay? And then in 13, we see the uh, beast and the false prophet described. And for the sake of time, you guys uh, um, can look at those. And if you have questions about uh, their powers and whatnot, 
Um, we can talk about that either afterwards tonight or uh, next week. And then in um, 14, um, as I was reading through it, and other scholars have um, given us an outline of the end times from what is set forth in chapter 14, because you have a godly remnant described, and you see the gospel proclaimed in verses 6 and 7. And then we see the fall of Babylon in verse 8, and the doom of all those who worship the beast in 9 through 11. And then we, um, um, verses 12 and 13, talk about the blessedness of the martyred saints. And then uh, in 14 through 18, we see a couple of judgments on the earth, uh, the harvest of judgment. And then finally, um, in uh, 19 and 20, we see the wrath of God on the unbelieving world. And really, if you think about it, hey, this is a little picture of what happens in the end times drama. Okay, and so if that helps you get a handle on what's going on, that's why I wanted to uh, share it with you. But um, I think that the uh, um, this little outline again, we're remember we're in a grace interlude between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. Okay, and uh, we're getting ready to uh, roll out. Um, well, I'm sorry, I misspoke on that. We're uh, between the trumpets and the bold judgments. The trumpets end in 1115 with the seventh trumpet. And then uh, the bold judgments begin in chapter uh, 15 and 16. Okay? And let's talk about the bold judgments. The Greek word megos, which means great, is used 11 times in Revelation 16 alone. And it emphasizes the unusual severity and intensity of the bold judgments. I think it's clear that these uh, judgments occur in the last three and a half years of the tribulation and probably right towards the end of it. And you see that they're poured out. This is one time where we have no grace interruption uh, of the bold judgments. They are poured out one right after another. No grace interruption. And I love the fact that, uh, let's see, this is in... um, Revelation 16, um, verse 17. When the seventh angel pours out his bowl, you hear a loud voice come out of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. What does that remind you of? It reminds you of Christ on the cross saying, It is finished. Um, In fact, the Greek uses a perfect tense, which indicates that it is a completed action. And so God's wrath on the earth is finished with the pouring out of the seventh bowl. And you know, gang, um, if you're on the wrong side of that, um, the people who are on earth during that time frame on the wrong side of it, for them, there is no escape. But for us today, and even for them in that time frame, uh, there will be an escape of trusting in Christ. And that's why the witnesses will be, uh, the 144,000 witnesses will be sealed so that they can proclaim the gospel throughout this time frame. And in 1621, you see the people's response. They turn and repent and everything's great. No, they curse God for the plague of hell because the plague was so severe. And, you know, as you read through each one of these judgments, 
Uh, I mean, it's like Hollywood going crazy. Um, but instead of people responding, people are going to continue to shake their fist at God. Okay? And so, for us today, knowing how to interpret the signs is something that's important. And uh, um, let me close with a little story. I've still got about 10 minutes, but uh, uh, let me close with a little story about uh, uh, being in the mountains. I don't know if you can tell what that is, uh, but that is my son uh, climbing up the east face uh, of um, the east ridge of Disappointment Peak in the Tetons. And uh, um, this was actually on his birthday in 1995. And uh, he uh, loved to climb, and um, I climbed as a kid, had a lot of fun doing it. And so Disappointment Peak sits right in front of the Grand Teton. And it was, was named Disappointment Peak because the first guys to climb it thought that they were going to climb the Grand Teton, which at that point was not yet climbed. And they got to the top of it, and um, when you sit on the top of Disappointment, there is a uh, mile... Um, chasm between you and the Grand Teton. It's, I mean, it's amazing to see that it looks like when you're looking at it from a distance that they're right next to each other, and it's really a part of the Grand Teton, but there's this huge chasm. And so, obviously, the first guys to go up it were hugely disappointed when they summited and realized that they were uh, a long way from accomplishing their goal of climbing the Grand Teton. Okay? But I don't know if you can tell, but, you know, normally when you're climbing, you see these beautiful blue pictures of uh, the blue sky behind you. And you can see that it's overcast on the day that we're climbing. And so as we finish, as we top out on this climb, um, our guide, uh, I could tell, uh, he was really nervous about something. And as I got up to the top, I could see why there was a storm in the distance. Okay, and you know, being on top of mountain peaks in uh, electrical storms is not a good thing. Um, two or three years ago, there was a great article in uh, the the last article of Sports Illustrated about um, a terrible lightning strike uh, that killed several people on the Grand Teton, um, and it was an amazing story of heroism of these guides and uh, um, the. Uh, climbing rangers who went to rescue these folks who had been struck by lightning. And, uh, um, but, you know, lightning and mountains don't go well together. And so when we topped out on uh, the, the climb, you top out on this ridge and all the technical climbing's done, and uh, then it's just a hike up to the summit. Our guide said, we're heading down right now. And when he meant we were heading down, we headed down. We literally ran off that mountain because of this storm that was coming. Now, to me, it just looked like, hey, there's a little gray sky, no big deal. There wasn't, you know, lightning in the area or whatnot um, because you could have heard the thunder and that sort of thing. But he had the experience to read the signs of the mountain weather, and he knew that we were in trouble. And before we got down, we got pelted with rain and sleet, okay? And so... You know, he had the judgment to be able to read the signs of the time, of that particular time, and so he got his clients safely off that mountain. It was pretty fun, and uh, the next year we went back and we actually made it, um, not only the technical climbing that we finished here, 
but we made it all the way to the top, and it was fun to get up to the top, but I'll never forget just the um, concern. It wasn't panic because he never panicked about anything. Uh, he made the hardest situation look easy. That's the way those pros are, okay? Uh, but he, was, he knew what could happen. He knew that uh, the conditions were right for us to get in trouble. And so he got his clients safely off that mountain in a big hurry. And so today, we need to understand the signs of the time, okay? Not uh, so that it scares us or concerns us or something that we obsess about, but so that it gives us hope because we know uh, what God is doing and we have the opportunity to tell others. And so uh, it reminded me of uh, Matthew 16, three through, or 1 through 3. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know, the old uh, uh, red at night, uh, sailors delight, red in the morning, sailors take warning sort of thing. Um, in the morning it will be stormy for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the time. And so just as the um, Jewish religious leaders missed the signs of the first advent of Christ, we need to be a people who are cognizant of and watching for the signs of his second advent. You know... Um, could this generation be the generation that uh, God chooses to come back? He absolutely could. It could be this time. But it also may be a thousand years from now. And, you know, if he tarries, then what's he doing? He's simply giving more people a chance to trust in Christ. Well, that's not going to happen unless you and I are willing to tell others about Christ. That we're willing to share our faith effectively with and in a winsome way with those we come into contact with, with the people in, that, we come, that we meet in just daily life in our workplace. And it, as we um, eat dinner and we eat out and go to the store and run the errands in daily life. You know, I think about um, Sarah and I love to, um, after Thursday nights, to go get a Slurpee to kind of, you know, re-energize uh, I don't know about y'all, but it's hard to stand up here and talk for an hour and a half. And when I get done, I'm a little dry. And so we stopped by um, 7-Eleven. And, you know, I have seen the guys in 7-Eleven a bunch. And uh, have I taken the time to tell them about Christ? Well, not yet. But I'm not done. Okay? But, you know, I'm praying for an opportunity to have a chance to uh, just say, hey, let me tell you about something that keeps me going even more so than this big Dr. Pepper Slurpee, okay? And so that's what we've got to be. We've got to understand the sign of the times and be motivated to go tell others. That's how we will, as a church at Watermark, will be effective for Christ by not coming together in, in this great holy huddle where we, you know, uh, kind of... Uh, whip each other into a frenzy about the study of Revelation, but by being willing to go out in wherever we are to give an account for the hope that's within us. That's being able to read the signs of the time. And so, what's next? 
Well, here I tried to make it personal. So what for me? What's the so what for me? And so can I read the signs of the time? And am I willing on the basis of what I read to tell others? Am I motivated to tell others about Christ? And do I permit the hope that's found in Christ to impact the way that I live my, my life on a daily basis? To impact the way that I treat my wife? To impact the way that I lead my kids? To impact the way that I do my work at Watermark? Do I permit the hope that's found in Christ to uh, impact the way that I treat others? Or am I simply satisfying my curiosity And finally, will my study of Revelation, like uh, Tom Constable uh, uh, said uh, that I shared last week, will it inspire me to live life in accordance with the reality that's unveiled? That's the question. Okay? And so what are we going to do with this understanding of the times? Is it going to motivate us to be effective witnesses for Christ? Next week, chapters uh, 17 through 20, we're going to be dealing with the destruction of religious and commercial Babylon. We'll talk about uh, the judgment seat of Christ. We'll talk about the uh, wedding feast of the Lamb. Uh, And we'll talk some about the Armageddon campaign. And then we will talk uh, a lot about the second coming. That's where we're going to put our stake in the ground. And then finally, we'll uh, close with a little bit on the millennium. And so, gang, the so what is, what are we going to do with this information? Is it going to motivate us to go out and tell others about Christ? Is it going to motivate us to uh, be purposeful in the way that we uh, go about our daily lives as we seek to serve Him in what we think, say, and do? Or is it just a curiosity? that we're just trying to satisfy, hmm, I wonder what's coming next. Well, my prayer is that it changes lives. Let me close in a word of prayer. Father, thanks for the opportunity to uh, open your word and to learn about reading the signs of the time. And Father, we look at your judgments uh, um, not as something fearful, even though that's what they are. They are uh, terribly fearful. But we're grateful, Father, to sit here on the right side of history and to uh, uh, have a relationship with uh, your Son so that we escape your wrath. And we thank you, Father, that you poured out your wrath on your Son instead of on me, uh, the one who deserved it. And so, Father, it's my prayer that if anybody is sitting in this room who does not have a relationship with your Son, that... um, um, that person would let me know. I would love the opportunity to visit with them about um, the claims that your son has made and how you can have a relationship with him. And so, Father, it's my prayer that um, um, each of us would do business with the living Christ as we uh, go about um, seeking to serve him in a way that brings you honor and glory. So thanks for this time. Thanks for each one of the folks in here and for uh, their participation in um, studying the signs of the time. In Christ's name, amen.